Courtship stories are fascinating stories. They're fascinating because no two are ever the same. The human interest in stories of people falling in love is uh, delightful to hear. And every time couples tell their story, it, it's always a little different. No two stories are the same. Uh, one, one man described it like love at first sight. He said, I saw, I knew, we met, we married. Just like that. I'm not sure it was exactly like that, but that's the way he described it. Others take a while, and maybe that's your story, where you were not really that much alike, and your differences kept you perhaps at a distance for a while, and then there were some areas of interest that you enjoyed together, and then over the months and maybe even years as time passed, you began to realize that you really could make a go of it together, and you fell in love, and ultimately you have married. It took a long time, but you finally realized that was the one for you. There are others who say, I, I thought I knew the one I was marrying, but I didn't really discover who he was or who she was until later. After we had married, I found out who the person really was. I dusted off an old story recently that illustrates this beautifully of a couple that was celebrating their golden anniversary. 50 years of marriage, and in their community, they were known as the harmonious couple of the community. They, their home was tranquil, and it was, a, it, it was a study in cooperation, in this relationship together. Well, that got the attention of a newspaper reporter who visited with them and wanted to know the secret of their harmony, their tranquility. The husband said, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll let you know when it got started. It began on our honeymoon. We went to the Grand Canyon, and uh, while we were there, we rode pack mules down to the bottom of the canyon. She rode her mule, and I rode mine, and we were on our way down, and her mule stumbled. And, and she said, rather quietly leaning forward, right into the ear of the mule, that's once. <laughs> we rode on, and, and it got a little deeper into the canyon. And wouldn't you know it, that old mule stumbled the second time. And she said a little more firmly, that's twice. Just before we got to the bottom, we'd gone almost a quarter of a mile, and the mule stumbled a third time. And I suddenly remembered that I'd married a woman from Texas. She reached in her purse, pulled out a revolver, and shot him. And the mule dropped. And I said to her, that was terrible. What a dreadful thing for you to do, that poor mule. And she looked at me and said quietly, that's once. <laughs> and he said, ever since then, we've lived a tranquil and very <laughs> quiet.
quiet, harmonious life together. <laughs> That's once. Oh. Now I'll suddenly change course and get very serious and say, there is no courtship more intriguing, more fascinating than the one between Mary and Joseph of Nazareth. Unique in every way. You know some of the details, but the truth is there is much about their lives of which we know nothing. We know nothing of their original families. Uh, we don't know about their mothers, their grandparents, their fathers, how their family responded when they got the news regarding Mary, and on and on I could go. We don't, we don't know precisely what the neighborhood's response was when they did marry rather hurriedly, breaking the betrothal and moving quickly into a marriage, we're left with our imagination. I'm, I'm, I mentioned earlier a betrothal. Uh, the reason I do that is because that word is used when you get into the scriptures, even though it's not a word we use today. Our word is engagement or engaged. And really, it's, it's when the man gives the woman, he loves the ring, called an engagement ring. Often, that ring is given. Sometimes, the engagement doesn't work out. It isn't a huge scandal. But in ancient days, when there was a betrothal, the whole community knew about it. And if there had been unfaithfulness, it was scandalous. I'm getting ahead of myself. Charles Ryrie writes in his Ryrie Study Bible, although Joseph and Mary were not yet married, so sacred was the year of engagement or betrothal that they were by custom considered as if married. This explains when you read Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, that Mary is betrothed to Joseph, and then shortly thereafter he is called her husband. See that in verse 19? That would be an inaccurate term to use for a man who is engaged. But not in those days. For you see, there was a bond. There was a relational cement that was set in place from the beginning of the betrothal. In brief, here's the way it worked. The Jewish couple went to the synagogue, met with a rabbi, told of their love relationship, their mutual agreement, to be betrothed, their names would be entered into the public record of the synagogue, and they would be known from that time on 
though not yet consummated in marriage, as husband and wife. She would be seen as his wife, and he would be seen as her husband. Now get this. Let's say she was sexually unfaithful to him during the betrothal year. It normally ran a full year. If she was, he had the option of a public declaration where witnesses would stand alongside him and she would be publicly shamed. In fact, before Roman law was enacted, the adulteress, as she was then known, would be stoned. That's how serious all that was. There's another factor in all of this I want to get into because it ties in with things I want to say. It's amazing to me how the Christmas story revolves around Mary and almost only Mary. How many Christmas cards emphasize Joseph or highlight him in the, in the artist's rendering? How about the songs? Mary, did you know? What about Joseph, did you know? But it's Mary, did you know? Here's another one. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Didn't the baby rest on Joseph's lap as well? It's all about Mary. We are programmed to think mainly of Mary with the baby. Now, admittedly, Joseph has nothing to do with the conception of the child, but he figures into the story highly, as we shall see. But he just doesn't enter our mind when we come to the Christmas story. I thought of this when I was reading Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, where he tells a, an imaginary puzzle and leaves you as a reader to answer the puzzle to show you how things just don't flash into your mind like a blink of an eye. Listen to this story. A man and his son are in a serious car accident. The father is killed, and the son is rushed to the emergency room. Upon arrival, the attending doctor looks at this child and gasps, this is my son. Who is the doctor? You read that story and you realize it's, it's a puzzle. It isn't obvious, as Gladwell writes, it, it's not like a math or a logic problem that can be worked out systematically with, with pencil and paper. He goes on, the only way you can get to the answer is if it comes to you suddenly, in the blink of an eye, from which he gets the name of the book, 
blink. You need to make a leap beyond the automatic assumption that doctors are always men. They aren't always, of course. The answer to the puzzle is now obvious and clear. The doctor is the boy's mother. But you don't think that when you read the story. At least most don't. It's like that we have a mental block regarding the significance in the Christmas story of the role Joseph filled. It's simply not in our mind. She's the mother. He's her husband, not the father, but he is her husband. But to be honest with you, going on the basis of tradition, who cares? Well, I'll answer it quickly with two words. God cares. He cares so much that in the genealogy of Matthew, he traces Joseph back through his heritage all the way to the Jewish father of the nation, Abraham. You can track it for yourself. You see, Joseph is mentioned when you get to verse 16. You go all the way back, you see it traces him back to Jesus, Messiah, and ties it into the story of Abraham and his generations that followed. Now look closely at verse 16, as I mentioned it. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. The Greek reads, from whom Jesus was born. See the words in your Bible, from whom? Hold on for a little pedantic moment here. In the Greek, that's feminine singular. Now, why do I make a point of that syntactical construction? Because Joseph's out of the picture when it came to the conception. Jesus, Mary, from whom Messiah was conceived, was born. The tiny construction underscores the virginity of Mary. She is the Parthenos, the Greek term for one who has never known a man intimately. She, the Parthenos, alone, it's the Greek way of saying she alone bore the Christ child. No involvement with any man. Now, one other fascinating part of this whole story is that the reader knows things that a character in the story does not know. I like books like that. 
you, you read certain novels or you read certain nonfiction books and you, you learn things that the people in the story being told in the lines of the book don't know. In this case, we know something right away that Joseph did not know. Now, if you forget that, much of the fascination is lost. Much of the understanding is overlooked. Joseph is a carpenter. Let me just put it in simple, red-blooded terms. He is in love with Mary. He looks forward to their, their wedding day when he will be alone with her, when they will know each other intimately, when they will begin their family together and they will have their children. He's working in the carpenter shop, I, I don't know, making a, a bench for uh, Asa and Rebecca in their home, or maybe a, a yoke for old Solomon's oxen. Uh, he, he's thinking about his work. Mary is somewhere else, apart from Joseph, maybe working in a home, maybe, maybe alone in, in, a, in a room, in someone else's home, serving, and she's stopped in her tracks, visited by an angel who says, you're the chosen one. She's shocked, especially when she hears, you will bear the Christ child. And her immediate response was, of course, how? How can it be? I, I've, I've never known a man intimately, never had sexual relations with a man. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be overwhelmed in the presence of the Holy Spirit. He will impregnate you, and the one you, you bear will be the Messiah. Understand, all of this is known by Mary. None of it is known by Joseph. Now, I, I realize as I speak to an audience like you, you, you know all of that, but if you can just remove yourself from the familiar and read it as if for the first time, you'll appreciate what Joseph is going through. Let me say it this way, especially if you are a man and you love this woman that you have met and you want to spend your life with her, and one of the things that has drawn you to her is her purity, her transparency. And you've never touched her intimately. You have never once violated that part of her life. You're saving all of that for marriage. And she says to you, out of the blue, I'm pregnant. Your first reaction is, uh, who's the father? It isn't me. And then she says, of all things, uh, it is all of God. 
and you're, you're hearing, God made you pregnant. Remember, Joseph has never read Matthew 1, okay? I always remember that kind of thing when I come to a story like this, because we are very familiar, many of us are, with the contents of Matthew 1. No one has whispered in Joseph's ear, by the way, everything she says is true. You know, you know what he's hearing from his buddies in the carpenter shop? Get rid of her. You don't want to spend your life with a woman that won't be faithful. And she told you God made her pray. That's blasphemy, Joseph. That's the kind of counsel the people of the street will give you. Or the people in the shop or the office. And let me add another twist to this whole thing. She leaves right away to spend three months with her cousin Elizabeth down in Judea, 90 miles from Nazareth. We don't have a record of when she said goodbye. We don't even know if she told him she was pregnant before she left to see Elizabeth or after she came back. That's not in the sacred record. So we're left with our imagination. Which brings me to an interesting book I've just finished reading. It's a, uh, it's a book titled uh, Mary, What the Bible Really Says by a man, a pastor named Douglas Connolly. And uh, he, helps us with a little imaginative part of the story. Listen to a few things Connolly writes. Maybe this is how the scene unfolded. Shortly after Mary's return from her visit with Elizabeth. So he's assuming she didn't tell him till she came back, which only adds to the intrigue because his question would now be, what happened while you were away? What were you involved in? Who was this man that got you pregnant? And on and on. So Connolly goes on. After her return of, with Elizabeth, she met Joseph in the garden of her parents' home or some other suitable location and told him that she was, quote, with child. She told Joseph, not with tears of shame, but with confidence. That's also interesting. How could she speak with confidence and no shame about being pregnant and I've had nothing to do with the pregnancy? Continuing, she told Joseph with no tears of shame or, but with quiet confidence. At first, Joseph couldn't believe what he was hearing. He even entertained the thought that Mary was joking with him, but he knew Mary would never joke in such a coarse way. What she said was true. She was pregnant. Joseph's first question was the one any man would ask in the same situation. Who is the father? Joseph's conscience was clear. He had never violated the purity of their engagement. His relationship with Mary had been carried out in full view of her family and the close-knit community surrounding them. But Mary obviously had not been the person Joseph thought she was. 
One of the things that had attracted Joseph to Mary was her humble desire to live transparently before her God and before the community of believers around her. But now, in one brief conversation, Joseph found his perception of Mary shattered and his life in shambles. Just a few more words. When Joseph asked her who the father was, Mary said an angel of God had spoken to her and told her she would conceive miraculously. Her son would be the promised deliverer, the Messiah, God's son. She said it so calmly, confidently. But how could Joseph believe a story like that? He left the garden without saying another word and went back to his home to cry. He wrestled for hours with his response. Divorce seemed his only solution. Local opinion would be harsh. Most people would tell him to divorce her openly in a public condemnation before the religious leaders. That would bring Mary shame and reproach or worse. In the old days, before the restrictions of Roman law, an adulteress was stoned. This was adultery. Even though the marriage had not been consummated, for in Jewish custom, the betrothal period began with the exchange of solemn vows as bonding as those of a modern wedding ceremony. You get the picture. Joseph is a real dilemma. What do I do? We pick up that story down in, down in verse 20. Look at it for yourself. As he considered this, I should go to the previous verse. Joseph, her husband, was a good man and did not want to, dis to disgrace her publicly. He decided to break the engagement to divorce her quietly. You could either do it publicly and make a show of it or just quietly have it handled with a rabbi and, and life goes on. He chose that in his mind. And that night, wrestling over the issue, look at what happened. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. This, by the way, is the first time Joseph gets the information from anyone other than Mary. And it comes from an angel, which in those days was not uncommon because the scriptures were not yet complete. God would speak through angelic appearances or night visions. And in this case, the angel appeared to him in a dream, called him by name, Joseph, son of David. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will have a son. You are to name him Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Matthew then adds, all this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. The virgin will conceive a child and will give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, 
that is God with us. Now look at this response. The only thing Joseph has to go on is the angelic appearance. The word in a night visit from an angel. Joseph woke up. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took Mary as his wife and did not have sexual relations with her until the son was born. And he named him Jesus. Well, I got to tell you something. Hats off to Joseph. The man who is virtually unknown by most turns out to be a hero in the story. He hears what he's to do. It's clear to him that it's from an angel. There's no wrestling any further. No more tears. No more struggle. Soon as he can contact Mary, they make their way back to the synagogue. It's officially declared and put into the record that this betrothal was cut short the couple marries, and within a matter of a month or so, she's beginning to show. How do you think the neighbors handle that? And then the next month, and the next month, and just before she reaches term, they leave Nazareth and they go to Bethlehem. We know it was because of the census that had been taken and the new taxation that the Caesar required, and they had to go to Joseph's county seat, which is Bethlehem. Beautiful how, how the Lord works, but what did that say to the neighbors? They aren't even willing to have the baby among us. Can you imagine how tongues wagged? I'll tell you, I'm not familiar with many things, but I'm familiar with gossip. And it's amazing how what is not true begins as rumor and before long the rumor sounds convincing and then the convincing becomes quote the truth when it's the farthest thing from the truth some even said she was pregnant from some roman soldier when jesus is a man he's still living with this these ugly remarks regarding his being an illegitimate. The Pharisees said to him, we know who our father is. And when he says, I'm, I'm, I'm of God, I've come from heaven, they, they, why? They would take up stones to stone him for blasphemy. He came unto his own things, but his own ones did not receive him. Not even fellow Jews believed his story. I'll tell you, the more you think about it, the more you realize Joseph comes out on top in this story. He never budges. He hears what he should do. He steps into it. He does it against all odds and against the wagging tongues, and if I might add a new, another dimension, wonder what his parents said to him, or her parents said to her. 
Now, there may have been wonderful people of God who had no struggle and they loved it that their daughter was chosen by God for this. On the other hand, they may not have been. What would you have done had it been your daughter or your son? And this is to be a miraculous conception? Let me say some things to all of us who are in this story. I've thought about this, and I, and I want to make this just as practical as I can. I want to give several possibilities. It's possible if we could leave the story till next time, we'll get to the baby in our next time together, but let's stay with today for right now. You may be facing a tough, life-altering decision. You, personally. It's one that calls for sacrifice, just like Joseph faced. The details are different. Should you follow the Lord in doing this, or should you hold back? I urge you to follow Joseph's model and do it. Do the hard thing. Life-altering, tough, regardless. Do it. It's a matter of obedience. Here's another possibility. You may be right now running the risk of being the brunt of others' criticism even though you are doing what is right and you're unable to convince people that it's right, just like Joseph and Mary. I imagine there was a time when they finally said to one another in the privacy of their home, we're no longer going to try to convince the neighbors. You may be running the risk of being the brunt of Someone's criticism because you're doing what's right and pleasing to God. My answer to you is stay there. You owe no one else an explanation for obeying God. What others may call illogical, even foolish, as wrong as that statement is, God calls right. Go there. Just like Joseph. Got up from his bed that next morning. Couldn't get a hold of Mary fast enough. He went there regardless of the criticism that would come. Here's a third. You may be forced to stand alone and to be virtually forgotten as another one is magnified. And you are reduced in significance. Let's face it, having said all I've said, of the two, Mary is carrying the child. Joseph is a loyal onlooker. Don't mean to be putting him down, but he has 
he has had nothing to do with this conception. <clears throat> Our older daughter told me recently about a television series that she and her husband are watching about royalty. Happened in England when, when the prince and the queen mother, we know her today as that, when they were engaged and then married, uh, they knew that one day would come when she would be the queen, but they had no way of knowing uh, when that would happen. Interesting, in truth, it happened quickly after they had married, rather quickly. And you know what? Uh, the prince took a back seat. Every time I, I look at royalty there in England and I see the queen mother, I watch him sort of a step or two behind. Why? She's the queen. He, he's not almost the king. He's not that at all. She's the queen. He's her husband. They're married. They're in life together, but she's the one who is in the spotlight. Now back to my application. I don't know your situation, but God may have in his plan to reduce your significance from a role you once filled. And I, I couldn't describe it here. You'll have to do that in your own mind. Maybe you were once a major player in this play, in this event. Maybe you were once the leader of that ministry or that organization. And by God's timing and because of God's planning, you've been reduced. And another has that position. My answer to you is step aside. Obedience for you is to step away from that role and accept one that's less than what you had. The ideal example is the Lord Jesus himself who was in the Godhead, did not cling to his role as a, as a part of the Trinity, but willingly gave up the voluntary use of his divine attributes and willingly came to this earth, this earth of all places, and obeyed the Father and took upon himself the role of a servant. Put bluntly, you may be asked to be a servant. That brings me to my fourth. Your new place of involvement may be caring for someone who is in need. Humble yourself. Step into that role. Accept it. See it as a privilege that God would ask you to fill that place. I believe Joseph was an enormous emotional support for his dear wife. 
I believe his arm was often around her shoulders. I believe when she decided to go with him to Bethlehem, I, I, I believe he cared for her as she was almost to term with that pregnancy and how uncomfortable that long 90-mile journey must have felt like. And there he was with her, being a, a helper to her and for her. Here's the way I put it. There are times in each of our lives when the Lord leads us to follow through on an assignment we would not have chosen. But he wants us to do it. Perhaps it's something others would not understand and, in fact, would not affirm. They would say, oh, you're too important for that. Or your gifts are not being used as they could be. But this is God's will. Uh, it, it may defy logic. It may lack common sense in others' opinion. But it's the right thing to do. And you know who I'm talking to. You. You. You who know what God is leading you to do and you're wrestling with, can you do it? The answer is absolutely, not only can you, you must. God is in it. There's no other answer, but I'm available. I will do it. If Joseph teaches us nothing else, he teaches us the value of obedience. I say again, I said it earlier, I'm going to say it again. He bases all of this on one night's angelic visit. And his whole life changes. He's now a carpenter who will train this remarkable son God would give them in the trade. He is now the husband of the, the one who would bear the child. What a privilege to have a hand in that role of mentoring and loving this young man into adulthood and letting him go to a life of service to the world. Few have ever said it better than John Oxenham in a piece I came across titled God's handwriting. Listen to Oxenham's words. He writes in characters too grand for our short sight to understand. We catch but broken strokes and try to fathom all the mystery of withered hopes of death of life, the endless war, the useless strife, but there with larger, clearer sight, we shall see this. His way was right. 
You and I are on this earth to fulfill his way, to go his direction, to obey his will. It isn't about us. If we learn that by the time we are placed in our burial site, we, have, we will have reached true adulthood. And I'll have to say there are many who never get that message. It is not about you in this life. It's not your script we're to follow, nor are you to follow it. God is in charge, and he's leading us to do his will, his way, in his time, for his purpose. End of story. And we have Joseph to thank for that reminder. Bow with me, will you? I'll not linger. I just have a few words to you who've never met the Savior. Difficult as it is for me to imagine, I, I know it's true, there are many who enter into the Christmas season not familiar with this, the one on whom the star shone, and about whom all of this revolves. His name is Jesus, the Messiah. I urge you to turn your life over to him your Christmas will never be the same if he is given first place, replacing you on your own throne of life and taking charge of your direction. Trust him now. Simple prayer, Lord, I acknowledge my distance from you, my selfishness, my sinfulness. I come before you and I believe in your Son as my Savior. I take him now. Thank you for giving me this gift this Christmas. We'd love to talk with you, and we will happily do so. If you get a hold of us, that's why we are here, to help you in that journey from earth to heaven. Thank you, Father, for the things we have learned today. Thank you that some of them are so foreign to the way we have been taught, it requires faith to go there. It requires discipline to obey. It requires a true vision from you to embrace a new way of life that doesn't revolve around ourselves. I pray for those who've never come to Christ they will this day trust him and give them then a life of obedience as we've seen modeled in the life of Joseph. Thank you in advance for those who've come to Christ this day. In the name of the Savior, the Messiah, our Master and Lord, we pray. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. Amen.